This episode is made possible by our generous patrons. To learn more, visit patreon.com forward slash ink to film. Welcome to the ink to film podcast where we read the book and then see the movie. I'm James and I'm Luke. And this week, with the help of special guest Remy Nakamura, we discuss Stanley Kubrick's 1980 horror film, The Shining. This is our Shining movie episode. We've been doing The Shining for a month now. We read Stephen King's novel over the course of three episodes. I hope you joined us for that. But for for this episode, we are welcoming back our first return guest, Remy Nakamura. So Remy is a writer of weird, dark, and Lovecraftian fiction. You can find his stories in Escape Pod, Pseudopod, and a variety of anthologies, including Ride the Star Wind Cthulhu, Space Opera and the Cosmic Weird, and Swords vs. Cthulhu, Swift Bladed Action in the Horrific World of H.P. Lovecraft. Welcome, Remy. Thank you for coming back. No, thanks for having me. I'm, I'm really excited. Yeah, so last we, last we met, we, uh, we were covering Annihilation, so it's, it's great to have you back. Yeah, so The Shining, uh, I found out... I think at a write-in we were both at that you hadn't seen this film and it kind of blew my mind because um, I asked you, <laughs> are, are you a fan of horror? Because I always assumed that people who hadn't seen this movie, it was because they just don't like horror. But you said you were a fan of horror, yet you hadn't seen this film. So I was like, okay, we got to have you on for this episode so that we can get your your reaction to it. So along those lines, like what is your experience with this movie? Like what do you know about it? Why hadn't you seen it up till now? And have you, have you read the book? Um, so I haven't read the book. Uh, still haven't, um, and oh, real quick, have you read any Stephen King novels? Oh yeah, I in fact I remember uh, in high school reading uh, things like uh, Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption, uh, the um, Salem's Lot. Uh, I was okay. a huge uh, Stephen King fan. Um, so you just missed The Shining, like <laughs> arguably his most famous novel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, and I'm not sure why there's the why this particular gap has existed. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I for, this, for this episode, that's why <laughs> it's all leading <laughs> up to this moment. <laughs> so I know about it just through pop culture osmosis. You know, uh, sure. I know the, uh, I think the, about the, the two things that, that I knew about, uh, one is the here's Johnny scene, you know, where he's, mm. uh, uh, breaking through the door with the ax. Uh, and, um, the only other thing that I really knew about it, and I learned that since coming to, to Oregon, is that all the external uh, shots were set uh, were taken at the Timberline Lodge. Yeah, that's right, and and that's a great segue because uh, James, when you came to visit, we went and uh, we went up to the Timberline Lodge and actually got some pictures up there. Yeah, we had to, man. I was I, I when you told me that that the Shining, the exterior for the Shining Hotel was was in Oregon, I was like, we're going. So, yeah, we went. Yeah. And There's a lot of confusion about that because I guess um, the interiors were shot at a different hotel. Um, I believe the Stanley Hotel in, in Colorado. Yep. But the exterior shots, and like now that I've been to the Timberline Lodge, it's so obvious. Mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, there's the Timberline. <laughs> you yeah. know, you can see it. You can see Mount Hood behind it. <laughs> yeah, you know what's really crazy that I didn't realize even when we went is that there's three locations. 
Um, yeah, there's a third for the for the maze, right? Well, the exterior. Yeah, when anytime you see the maze in the exterior shots, it's also in like London, I believe, or somewhere in in England. Right. And uh, it's really interesting because that there's like a peak. The roof comes to a point, and the one that's in England mm. doesn't have that. So it's like if you look really closely, you can tell which one they're they're filming at. So I wonder if that was an intentional. And we'll get into that later. But I mean, I know there's some like oh, yeah. um, things that Kubrick does to like disorient you. For sure. And so I'm wondering if he was okay with that sort of because it make you feel like you're never really sure where you are. I uh, I have uh, thoughts on that for sure. We'll come back around to that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So yeah. So so you knew you knew there was a here's Johnny scene in which he comes through the door with an axe, but. What what was your context for that scene, or was it completely like you didn't know why that would happen? Uh, no, totally out of. I think I might have known that there was some descent into madness, uh, but yeah. even that, I don't know where I got that from. Uh, I I didn't even know that was a ghost story, um, wow. yeah, uh, or or that there were ghost elements to this. Uh, um, yeah, I really had very little uh, context for this. Uh, and I'm not sure how I escaped that. <laughs> I remember when when I when I first saw it, I thought I think I knew that it was a story about like cabin fever, and I think that's all I thought it was. I didn't know there were ghosts either, but uh, yeah, definitely definitely some haunted elements in this film, uh, much more so in the book than the film. But I mean, there's it's definitely present in both. But I think that element was kind of not as not as strongly emphasized as it was in the book in my in my opinion what do you think James I totally agree I don't think that that Kubrick set out to make like the same story I think he was making the descent into madness film rather than the ghost story right. that that Stanley, or that Stephen King wrote Cool so I think for this episode because um, we have a lot of elements here there's a ton of history in this movie and James has done a ton of research into it um, I purposely tried not to do a lot of research because I wanted to be able to get it fresh from you um, and then we got Remy, who's just seen it for the first time, hasn't read the book, knows nothing <laughs> about it. Um, so we also want to get your take on everything. Um, so we're going to kind of bounce between those three things. James is going to kind of run this thing and, and kind of lead us along the path through this movie. Sounds good. So so also, we wanted to shout out Emily Saveda. She is launching a, a book today. It's This Cruel Design, which is the sequel to her novel, This Mortal Coil. And uh, listeners of the Ink to Film podcast may remember that she, Emily was on our third Jurassic Park episode uh, for the book. Um, she was a great guest, and we just want to wish her luck with this novel. Go pick it up. It's going to be great. Um, and shout out to her. She's doing her book launch event right now, and we can't be at it because we're recording this, and it, even though she's right down the road. Go, Emily. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so the time has come. Uh I think this was a long time coming for for us, Luke. the the uh, The Shining is a big one, and it was Stephen King, so we 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 are going to do it. It's our first time doing Kubrick. This is our first uh, first legendary Stanley Kubrick, and uh, something something interesting about him is that I think we will definitely be revisiting him because nearly all of his films are based on novels, and uh, there's some really interesting reasons why he did that. Um, he felt that adapting films from novels was better than getting a screenplay written by someone because he felt that the people who were writing screenplays weren't as prolific or as talented as some of the people who were writing the greatest novels that that were being released. So he felt that going off of that kind of source material, he he would lead to a better film because it's just based in something that he feels is more... Like richer. And then he also uh, liked to, to adapt things because he felt that uh, it's easier to objectively look at a story and say if it's good or bad. 
and he felt that he could he could look at a story objectively say I want to make that into a film and not having any of his own hang-ups with the story elements and things like that and of course he he changed a lot mm. of his films yeah pretty dramatically so this is an example of that yep so to talk about Kubrick a little bit I do you are you guys I'm sure you know of him and his legacy uh, honestly treat me like I know very little about Kubrick <laughs> that would be accurate <laughs> T- 2001 is probably one of my favorite films and I actually saw it uh, um at the Hollywood Theater, uh, fairly recently. That's um, awesome. Oh, cool. in, in, was it projected? Was it was it on film? I think so. That's uh, awesome. I think I, Hollywood I Theater is yeah. known for doing yeah. that, so that wouldn't surprise That's me. That's great. That's I would love. I haven't seen it projected on film. That would be amazing. Um, yeah, that was a pretty amazing experience. So I'll give you the first. First, I'll give you the textbook definition of of Kubrick. Uh, Stanley Kubrick was an American film director, screenwriter, and producer. He is frequently cited as one of the greatest and most influential directors in cinematic history. His films, which are mostly adaptations of novels or short stories, cover wide cover a wide range of genres and are noted for the realism, dark humor, unique cinematography, extensive set design and evocative use of music. So that's that's the textbook version of him. But uh, I, I would start by saying that Stanley Kubrick is definitely a madman. Um, and one of the most meticulous directors to ever to ever make film he was so scientific with everything that he wanted to do everything he had to control every element and the amount of research that he did going into each of his projects was just unheard of and from a story about the shining from a he was trying to find after i think it was after barry Lyndon, he was trying to find what his next project would be and he was reading everything and his secretary would say that if she heard he what he would do is if he didn't like he would throw the book against the wall so he kept here his secretary (laughs) would always hear books hitting the wall and then uh, eventually she, he, he was reading The Shining, or sorry, eventually she didn't hear anything being thrown at the wall and she walked in and he was reading The Shining. Uh-huh. So he felt like there was <laughs> there was something there to make a film with. I feel like that's that's a good, like, from there you can already tell like what kind of person he's going to be. And I'm sure you've heard the horror stories from some of his actors. Um, yeah, that's something I definitely want to get into because that, that's one of the things I have heard. And I haven't heard a lot about him, but yeah, definitely some horror stories too. He, uh, so... Specifically with this movie, he was he was obviously known as the, one of the most meticulous directors ever. A lot of his stuff is very symmetrical. The staging and the blocking of his scenes are very accurate to what he wants them to be, and he famously does scene after scene after scene. But the, in this film, there's something to be said you mean for t- like t- multiple takes, mu- right? multiple takes. Yeah, sorry. And yeah. in this film, uh, people theorize that potentially he was he was forcing his actors to do more takes than was necessary in order to push along this madness. And this sort of type, like he was trying to push his actors into a zone where they were uncomfortable and they were uh, as high strung as maybe the characters in the movie were supposed to be. Right. Which I had heard. Yeah. I I tried to minimize the amount of research that I did, but I was really curious about uh, uh, Shelley Duvall uh, Mm -hmm. and a little bit about um, um, the guy who plays uh, Dick uh, Halloran. And apparently Mm -hmm. both of them uh, like... I think in one case, uh, Jack Nicholson intervened uh, because, you know, um, uh, was it Scatman uh, Crothers? It was like 69 and they were, they took like, they were like doing 60 plus takes of, of, of the, the one scene where he gets uh, attacked with the axe and, uh, and he, I guess, broke down in tears uh, at one point. And I think wow. the, the same with uh, Shelley Duvall. I think, the, I think that her treatment is particularly infamous. Yeah, and and there, uh, James, you sent me some behind the scenes footage that I actually watched right before recording. And in that footage, there was a part where she was talking about her hair falling out 
all oh, the stress. Wow. Oh, yeah, it's it's it was crazy. The um, to talk about what you're talking about, Remy. Um, Scatman Crothers had had. I think that this is still in the. From what I understand, there was a in the Guinness Book of World Records. There there was the record number of takes ever on a scene was Scatman Crothers was forced to do a scene 160 times. Holy crap! That's do you know crazy. which scene it was? I don't know which one it was, but it was one where it was mostly just uh, Halloran. So it was either okay. Halloran talking to Danny or something like that, probably. or like in the or in his like hotel room or wherever he is in Florida. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, he's, he doesn't have a lot of scenes. <laughs> yeah, he does. He really doesn't. <laughs> uh, but very likable character, just like in my opinion, just like he was in the, in the novel. Um. And definitely uh, bummed to see the way he goes down. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. I, to, to bring that up, uh, this movie feels like a lot of the characters are are um, more mysterious or even like sinister. There were times that it felt like Halloran was maybe didn't have Danny's best intentions in mind, but that was kind of just I felt like off like to put put you on your back foot and m- kind of make you feel uneasy. Uh, and I think that that's the main takeaway from this film for me personally is just Kubrick is doing everything he can to make you feel uneasy, whether it's subliminally or not, whether it's right in your face. It's it's he's always trying to make you feel not in your normal state. So he's he's terrifying you in front of you and then also in the back of your mind, I think. So I have a lot of like general observations I want to make. And I also want to talk a little bit about the book to film comparisons. But. Before that, I want to get Remy, just your, your general take on the film um, and, and what it was like seeing it for the first time. Where did it, you know, meet your expectations or do something different than you're expecting? So I'm a fan of uh, 2001 uh, and 2001 mm-hmm. has some uh, compared to a lot of modern films that it, I think a lot of people experiences. It, it, it feels very slow, right? Yeah. Um, and so that was partly my experience of, of The Shining. One of the first things I noticed is that in so, some parts of it move along really uh, slowly. Uh, so I felt that kind of slow build. Um, I'm thinking, for example, just some of the shots following Danny around as he's um, riding on his uh, um, big wheel. Uh, yeah. Like some of those just seem to go on, right? But they're yeah. also... I don't know, like, uh, uh, I felt like they were really good at, at, by bringing you down to Danny's level and, and kind of, there's a little bit of, uh, um, uh, I don't know how you describe it, but it's, the, the camera's a little shaky, you know, like you, as, as it's following him around, you feel that kind of unease, you feel the, um, the immensity of the space compared to this little kid and how empty yes. it is. Um, yeah. so I felt and, like... and, and the, the, the labyrinthine turns, I think was yeah. very, st- it stood out. He's, it was like he was going through a maze within the hotel itself. So I felt like that, yeah, that, that maze theme, uh, I think kept popping up. Like I'm, I'm thinking of just like the pattern on the, the carpets and the, the wood. Mm-hmm. And, um, so I felt like that, that was, uh, and compare that early in the film to, uh, like some of the last scenes with uh, Shelley Duvall in them, um, where you know her her character is is uh, walking around finding you know um, um, Dick Halloran's body, uh, seeing the the looking into the ballroom, seeing all the skeletons. Like you're just getting kind of this shot after shot, right, of these uh, <laughs> really 
uh, intense kind of moments compared to what you saw uh, early in the film. And so um, that um, kind of build up and then uh, kind of horrific climax uh, I felt was was pretty well done. That said, um, it's interesting. I, um, I really enjoy horror because I find it escapist for me. Mm. Um, I like stories about ghosts and monsters and the supernatural vampires because it's not real, right? The, those right. things are, it's like watching a Kill Bill. The violence in that is is over the top. It's not real, right. real violence, right? It's like um, an- anime violence. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But compare yeah. that violence to something like the uh, human violence in um, uh, Pan's Labyrinth, you know, uh, mm. uh, mm-hmm. the, uh, or... Um, and then so you have the human violence of, of um, um, Jack Torrance uh, yeah. in, in this movie. It's, to me, this is real horror. Um, mm. to, it's, it's something that could take place in real life. Um, I feel that a lot more um, intensely than I do... Um, supernatural more overtly supernatural horror um so if we're looking at this as uh jack nicholson as i guess you can argue back and forth right like is this is this all a lot of this is it taking place in jack's mind uh Mm. are there real ghosts um i would argue that there are real ghosts that there's been uh that the shining uh itself the psychic uh communications that uh danny and uh um, that Dick have are, are, are real and, and probably so yeah. uh, I can't explain the uh, o- opening of the locker. Well, and we see, we see Wendy seeing them too. Yeah. Yeah. That too. But I think it'd be also be hard to draw the line between, well, what is madness and what is, you know, a real ghost. Yes. Um, I think that's that, that you're, you're touching to me on the, the question that is at the heart of this story um, and, and it is interesting because I would argue that the book and the film take very different sides on that argument. Oh, sure. wow. um, because uh, so Stephen King, I don't know if, you, if you've heard this, Remy, or not, but he famously hates this adaptation. Oh, really? <laughs> um, and, and, and it's, and it's kind of infamous because it's considered such a landmark horror film to have the creator come out and say that he hates it. Um, but it's because King really loves this novel it's it is he he has said it's one of his it is perhaps his favorite novel he's ever written um and a lot of it i think is having to deal with certain personal demons that he was struggling with at the time but um jack torrance in the book and we talked about this with wendy in our third book episode and also throughout our coverage um he is more sympathetic in the book version um and we see a man who who is in my opinion, struggling with, you know, alcoholism and abusive tendencies, yet truly loves his family, truly loves his wife, uh, is sort of um, terrified of the darkness that's within him and struggling against it. And then when he comes to the Overlook, he becomes sort of a victim of the Overlook and that it takes those elements and it, and it just like fans the flames. Now, that does happen in the movie, but I uh, one of the things that King has said, and I tend to agree with, is from the moment we, we meet Jack Torrance in the film, we think this guy is a piece of shit, and he's an abusive 
father. And he's got, like, he seems like he's lying from the jump when he's talking about, like, oh, yeah, that'll never happen when he's talking about cutting up his family. And when he says it, you're like, I don't believe you. <laughs> like, you sound like this person who's who, who's kind of planning this almost. I, I um, wanted him to fight against the influence of the Overlook. Uh, yeah. And I, I felt like there were a couple of moments where, where, you know, like maybe when he was pulling Danny in and say, I love you, you know, I would never hurt you when, when Danny asked him. I feel like there's a couple of moments where maybe there's a little bit of that. But yeah, there's no struggle, really. He just kind of full on gives in. All right. So I have a lot of thoughts on a lot of things that you guys just yeah. said. So let me rattle a couple of things <laughs> yeah. off real quick. Uh, the You were talking about the tracking shots with Danny. I wanted to touch on that. This was some of the first implementation of, of Steadicam. So Steadicam was just becoming a technology that was being used in filmmaking. So Kubrick was using a Steadicam to follow Danny around to chase him in, in, the, uh, in the labyrinth and the maze. Um, and that use of tracking shots throughout this entire movie, this movie is nearly all tracking shots and it's, and it's giving the building, it's giving the hotel this sense of, of scale. Like you were talking about before, it's, it's massive, but we're also, he's also giving us a blueprint of the area that this place, that this takes place in. And, uh, in my research, I found that if you pay very close attention, um, the blueprint doesn't match up. So, yeah. so certain things are happening on certain floors that shouldn't be happening on certain floors. Danny might be riding his, his, uh, tricycle through the bottom floor. And then next time we cut, he's up in like the third floor. Um, there's a lot of that stuff going on, which again, just an uneasiness. And then, um, I did want to get to the character, the undercutting of the character's arcs from, from, from book versus film, because I, when we were covering the book, um, I agreed that I felt like Jack is more sympathetic. And I think that lends itself to a great horror film is having an arc for your characters lends something to it. But again, I think what Kubrick is doing by undercut, he undercuts all of the characters in my opinion. And from what I've read mm. also is that if you think about it, we're much closer to Danny in the book. We we're, he's further off and he seems like he's being affected in different ways maybe. And also uh, he undercuts Jack like you were saying, he immediately is not likable and he's also clearly going to do all of these awful things. And I think that that was Kubrick's way of undercutting the conventional way that a horror film would go and making us uneasy and saying, this guy's going to do this. He's going to kill his family. When is it going to happen? When is the powder keg going to go off? When is he going to like run through the halls with an ax? Um, and I right. think that works really effectively because through the whole movie, again, you're uneasy you're not you you know that it's coming you just don't know when it's coming yeah it's a different sort of tension but i agree it's not a will he won't he it's it's when will he is really all it is <laughs> like how soon is this going to happen because <laughs> we all know it's coming right and i think that if it was a book that was written that way it wouldn't work as effectively if it was a book right. that was just he's crazy he's going to do this when is he going to do it versus a film being the same way um i think that it definitely especially with with the use of long takes that he does where ev around every corner you're expecting something to be there it's just like ratcheting up tension the whole time and making you feel yeah. uneasy with that do you guys have any other um general thoughts or anything you wanted to talk about because i just have one more before we get into plot i have a kind of a personal take on this film that uh, i hope you won't mind my sharing but um so i am probably about the same age as danny uh, and uh, or at least the actor who played Danny, who has a kind of an interesting uh, backstory too. I think this is the only real uh, um, uh, 
role he ever played. Um, yeah. And he pretty much dropped out of Hollywood after this. But um, so the kid in me really identifies with Danny, right? Like we're growing up around the same time. Um, when I was Danny's age, I lived in an isolated olive orchard in Greece. Um, my dad was in the Navy, and so he was away a lot of the time. My mom was a young mom um, who uh, didn't speak English very well, uh, didn't speak Greek, and so she was very isolated. Uh, some of the most horrific and isolating experiences of my life came from this period. Um, and so I can see myself as Danny. I also experienced some uh, abuse at this time, like, uh, um, and so, um, yeah, there's a, a, I, I think this movie was hard for me for some of these reasons. I, it wasn't traumatizing cause I've, you know, like worked through these things. Um, but so that kind of like inner, that close intimate violence between family members, um, I felt powerfully in that sense of isolation, uh, you know, a, away from being kind of isolated from anybody who could help you or uh, from playmates, from, um, I have this, uh, just a couple of quick experiences. I have this, I have this fear of wasps because at one time uh, I was locked out of the house uh, on purpose because uh, I guess I was being annoying or something. And these, this wasps started buzzing around me. I was like five or six and I could not get back in the house, you know, like, uh, so there's just like, so I'm just thinking like Stephen King, I think is really good at translating these really intimate uh, sorts of, especially if you've read on writing, he's taken a lot of yep. his personal experiences and, and put them into um, his, his works. And so I felt a lot of that in this. Uh, and so that's kind of a personal take I have. And I imagine that as other people watch horror, read horror, there are probably different things that they connect with, you know, um, maybe they're, you know, vets uh, who, who have experienced some kind of, you know, uh, trauma or something. And then they might experience that in, in the shows that they watch. And so I imagine that all of us like bring something different, but that's something that I felt probably more powerfully in The Shining than I have in, uh, certainly in Annihilation and you know, other films that I've watched. Well, just thank you for sharing. Um, I think um, a lot of people are probably, you're right. I think a lot of people who've seen this film have probably had a similar experience um, that you, than, you know, than the one you've had. And, and uh, all of us, I think find things in, cause we've all, I think most people have some sort of uh, family history that has not always been uh, perfect, right? There's always been times of, of strife in there and and this this movie is about a family at its core and like, like you said that close personal violence and and yeah i think um kubrick wanted to play on that um and the idea of a fa of an abusive father losing his mind and turning on his own family is uh that's a devastating premise right mm -hmm. um i think that's one of the reasons why this story is so iconic because it is so it's not just that sort of like um, a ghost, you know, and it's funny because there are ghosts in this in this story, mm -hmm. but 
that's not what it's about, really. And and and, I, and or an alien or whatever it is. Like it's not it's not a, a big monster chasing you around. The monster is your own dad, right? Yeah. I, and so that that is something that is deeply unsettling and frightening about this film. I wonder how many women also can identify with Wendy and her right. maybe sense of powerlessness and isolation at different points of the movie. Yeah, definitely. I also wanted to bring up Wendy. Um, that's another character, like you were saying, James, who has been completely undercut. Um, this version of Wendy, Wendy is almost unrecognizable from Wendy in the book, in my opinion. Uh, in my research, I found that, and this may have been another Kubrick tactic, but in, in the screenplay, there was more lines written for Shelley and for the character of Wendy. And as time went on, famously, Shelley and, and Kubrick didn't get along very well. And yeah. it, it's either, like I said, this could be one of his tactics. This could be a way of, of putting her off and, and like putting her in a certain mindset. And that's, I would say that's fairly unethical. And, and you know, some people would not be okay with that. Um, sure. And, but it, it uh, that was his tactic. And, and it's interesting to note that he, he was cutting, actively cutting her lines because he felt like she wasn't performing them correctly. And he would say like, don't worry about it. Let's cut it. And it almost feels to me that that was like antagonizing her. And making her feel like the character of Wendy. Yeah, I mean, we talked. Yeah, we talked about this a little bit. I think we touched on it in Die Hard, maybe with the Alan Rickman story yeah. about how they they uh, they they dropped him early and pretended like it was like a some sort of malfunction essentially and made him think he was actually dying in order to get the shot. Oh, <laughs> I think that there's a certain school of thought that if you force people into a situation, they're gonna have a, put out a better performance. But like we, I think we talked about it in the podcast, it's it's their job to act. So. You should trust in the fact that they can probably get themselves there. Um, that being said, all yeah. the performances are incredible in this movie. Whether it's Kubrick's design to antagonize his actors and they knew what they were signing up for or they didn't, um, kind of unknown. It sounds like they don't know. They didn't know the extent to what they were getting into, but um, they all stayed throughout. You know, they could have quit, but they nobody did. But I mean, that's yeah. not to say that. Shelley probably wanted to because it's from what from all accounts she she really had a really rough time and she she recounts it as a really tough time in her life and uh she doesn't feel that she gets the recognition she deserves for that role and neither does Jack Nicholson actually he's he's come out and said like that was one of the greatest performances I've ever seen out of anyone in Shelley's portrayal in this movie just in terms of like the stuff that she had to go through and and the way that she she withstood it and and put out the performance she did yeah, and I wonder how much of it is people because if, if I, I have to imagine a lot of book fans came to this film and were maybe a little bit frustrated with the version of Wendy we get because the version of Wendy we get is a lot more hapless and sort of um, just like fraying and 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 kind of I mean we see her early on kind of taking care of the the hotel while Jack is you know ostensibly doing nothing um, so in that sense we see her being a little bit um, more active. But for the most part, she she is very reactive, and 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 the Wendy in the novel is you know constantly doing things like she always has plans. She's always sort of like uh, it's like a it's like a chess game with her husband a little bit and and protecting her 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 son and she's just a, a lot stronger of a character mm-hmm. um, in the sense of you know uh, her role in the plot. Um, so yeah, I wonder how many people maybe are reacting negatively to going like, what is this version of Wendy? This is not what I thought I was going to get from the novel. Um, I did want to touch a little bit on Jack Nicholson because I think his performance of Jack Torrance is the only, I think it's the reason I enjoy this movie. Um, at, other than the meticulous craft that went into it, obviously. 
But his performance, it's my favorite performance of his. Um, I, I do find it deeply terrifying, but there's just an edge of it crossing over into like a manic, uh, maybe that's not the right word. It, it, it's almost It's almost comical at times. Like I can almost laugh at how mad he is. Um, and that part of it is kind of enjoyable in a weird way for me. Um, even as the things he's doing are reprehensible, like just seeing somebody who's just losing it on screen so convincingly, um, there's a thrill to it. And so I, I think that's where I come down on like how I'm able to enjoy this character that is otherwise just so unlikable. Yeah, there's there's something that that in this viewing I came to the realization of is is I think part of the reason he's so unsettling and the, his portrayal is he he's the angriest that he's ever been in his entire in his entire life but he's like smiling and laughing through it and right. it's so yes. that's so terrifying to me that you could be the like pure rage and re- be reveling in it and just loving it and and like laughing and and that's like the i think that edge that he gives to it is is really like I mean, you could argue that like maybe th- other things later on, like I, I th- something that comes to mind is like something like the Joker, where it's like he's not rage, but he's mm. always smiling and laughing through his evil doings. I think, um, I, yeah, I found it hard to. I agree with you on a rational level that his performance was powerful, but I don't know that I enjoyed. Um, the <laughs> the descent into madness, uh, and I was actually thinking. I, I think I enjoy Kubrick's vision uh, and his implementation of that vision more. So, like that last the the scene that's kind of burned into my brain is that the frozen Jack at the end. Oh, interesting. Uh, where he's uh, uh, you know one moment he's active, he's trying to chase after Danny. They're getting away in the snowcat. And then the next moment, he's like in a pile of snow, right? <laughs> he's got this kind of <laughs> crazed look and he's dead. He's frozen, you know. Yeah. Uh, but uh, I feel like there are these moments like that that, that I, have, I can take away that kind of visual, that vignette, you know. Uh, and, and those are the things that, that uh, are the most powerful to me. Yeah. You know, and I think, um, I think with repeat viewings, it has given me distance a little bit, you know, where whereas I can see that, like, I, honestly, I wish I could go back and ask me after I saw it the first time, because I bet I had different takeaways. Um, because the first time I'm so caught up in it, whereas whereas like this, I, I've probably seen the movie six, seven, eight times now, and so and and I've read the book twice. Um, so and I've studied it for the podcast. So I feel like at this point I was kind of just like reveling in performances and ch- checking out set design and and noticing little tricks that the cameras were doing because I was able to to like disengage from the plot in a certain way and engage with that part of it um so yeah I think that's why I came around because like I, I've, I've seen the behind the scenes footage which is incredible of um Jack Nicholson like psyching himself up for certain scenes and like you can see him like literally just like the way his body's moving as he's like trying to get into this like insane state um and I just it's like it's really interesting to think about his process as a, as a performer and how he was able to get that out of himself. Um, it, it's really cool, but, but yeah, I, I appreciate that too, because I think, uh, I think a first time viewing is, it's going to be a very different experience. Yeah. I was so into it. Right. And, uh, mm. and, and Jack is, is not 
a good person. <laughs> you know, I mean, he's the mo- he's the mo- he is the monster of this yeah, of this film. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, and 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 that's the key difference I think in this book and this movie is that the Overlook Hotel is the monster in the book, mm. and it uses it uses Jack as a puppet, but I don't think it ever really. I think it's always the hotel that is the villain. Um, and, and we could see that in the way the book ends quite differently, too, um, with, with the destruction of the Overlook Hotel, which doesn't even happen in the movie. Yeah, in the movie, it's the end of Jack. That's the end of the, the movie, essentially. Right. We, we don't even get to see, like, there's no denouement of, the, of you know, um, Wendy and, and Danny kind of like, oh, they're safe now. Right, right. It's just which there boom. is in the novel. You'd be interested. You might be interested <laughs> oh, wow. to hear. We, there's a whole there's a whole epilogue of Danny on the on a on a um, on a dock with uh, uh, Halloran who survives what? in the book, and uh, yeah, they they have this moment, and, and, and Wendy's there, and they've 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 got this new life planned. And it's actually a very like it, it ends in this really warm moment. There's a there's oh, a wow. cut scene from the film uh, that was an epilogue scene that Kubrick ended up cutting that had. Um, this is i mean we've already talked about it at this point but um it is olman showing up to wendy and danny in a hospital telling them that they could that they couldn't locate jack's body oh so geez. basically like he's still out there kind of like another twist dun, dun, ending dun, at the dun. end so that, that ended up being that. that would have been a little cheesy yeah. honestly well I think. It, yeah, I think that he realized that it was one twist too many and that he needed to just go right. with the, the picture, which which we'll get to. Um, something that I wanted to say before we move into plot is the everything in the movie, everything that's on screen, everything that happens. I feel like we should note that things aren't accidents in a Kubrick film. So everything he does, he's trying to demonstrate a point and everything is important. So moving from that, uh, we have the opening shot of the scene of this movie. And it's these massive helicopter scenes with with huge views, very scenic, and this very haunting score. And that right away is is laying the subtext for what this movie is going to be. It's it's this like otherworldly movie, and this the haunting score automatically sets it up. And then the conversation that they have in the car about again about the uh, Donner Party and the cannibalism mm-hmm. and and. Uh, a lot of people have have said that this this movie is uh, about cycles of violence and and that being the first one that's mentioned moves into us v- like getting the interview jack meeting olman and uh being touring the grounds and as he tours the grounds they're told that uh it's built on an indian burial ground and as they go through the the uh the hotel more uh wendy asks about the uh native american um motifs kind of like the decorations and stuff and and the the reason i'm bringing all this up is because people feel that there are, are many different statements that that kubrick's trying to make with this film and this specific one i feel like it is to me holds the most water just because he basically to come around to the actual point the point being um this movie has something to do with the atrocities that were done by the american people to the native american people um in america early america and uh, maybe the hotel is like a response to those atrocities. And there's a lot of there's a lot of things that to point to um, as we go through. But let me just let me just read some plot here. Jack Torrance arrives at the Mountain Isolated Overlook Hotel, which is 25 miles from the closest town, to be interviewed for the position of winter caretaker. Once hired, Jack plans to use the hotel's solitude to write. The hotel, built on the site of a Native American burial ground, becomes snowed in during the winter. It is closed from October to May. 
Manager Stuart Ullman warns Jack that a previous caretaker, Charles Grady, developed cabin fever and killed his family and himself. In Boulder, Jack's son, Danny Torrance, has a terrifying premonition about the hotel, viewing a cascade of blood emerging from an elevator door, and then falls into a trance. Jack's wife, Wendy, tells a doctor that Danny has an imaginary friend named Tony, and that Jack has given up drinking because he dislocated Danny's shoulder following a binge. So, basically very similar, so far, to the book. Yeah, that's all. That's all pretty much identical. With and I would say the the lone exception being how those scenes play out, in that uh, I don't know. I, I identified a little bit with Jack in the book and his um, as a writer, whereas Jack Torrance being a writer in the film almost feels like an afterthought to me. I mean, he does do writing, I guess, in the movie, but but I never really felt like this creative frustration. Whereas King, I think, did a good job of. Um, showing how desperately Jack in the in the book wanted to be saved by his own art, and uh, I didn't really get any of that from this version of Jack Torrance. I agree with that. I mean, it seems like um, again, it's something that was just cut due to kind of trying to make. I think it adds to the character and the arc in the book. But well, yeah, being if, cut if here, you're going to take the character and make him into the monster. You don't want to make him. You don't want to give him any sort of uh, complexity that might make the audience like him. I, I I don't know. Like you kind of want the audience to be afraid of this guy from the jump. So I, I get it. What what do you? So you've been hearing some just stuff about the novel, Remy, and and what is your? How do you feel about the, these details and 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 you know the the differences we're, we're highlighting here? I'm still trying to get over uh, uh, Dick Halloran's uh, uh, being alive <laughs> in the novel, and yeah. I, I'm wondering like uh, like. Kubrick takes out the you know the one one uh, you know person of color <laughs> like it's yeah I think it's I think it's the only person who dies on screen right like uh, he is yeah. yeah it's a surprisingly low body count in this yeah. yeah and I think that that uh, that was to because Kubrick felt that Jack because Jack in the movie and I'm sorry Jack in the book doesn't kill anyone so for him to be the monster without get any bloodshed would mm. kind of in a film uh, like makes yeah. it feel less of a monster. So uh, I think it was also another, I think the other thing about it is that book readers going into The Shining thinking they knew everything were pretty surprised when that happened. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, in, in, so in the novel, he famously uses a, a was it a, a croquet mallet or what's, what's the name of that Roke, game? Roke mallet. Roke, a Roke mallet instead of an axe. And so he essentially beats Halloran to a pulp, breaks his jaw, oh. and like smashes him up and all this stuff, but he doesn't die. So it is still a very violent scene, but, wow. but he doesn't end up dying from it. Wow. I, I kind of wish that Jack had had more complexity in the, in the movie. Um, mm. uh, I feel like that's the, the, the worst kind of horror is to be able to relate to a character and mm. then to watch them descend, right? Uh, and right. and I had no no relation to Jack in this movie from the get go. Well, he's definitely a tragic, more tragic figure in the novel, right? Because because of because I don't know. I mean, and we had this debate because like part of me wants to say he's tragic and feel bad for him, but he also does shit in the book that there's no excuse for. Well, yeah, this is the thing. Do you think that Jack ends up hurting his family? without the hotel in the book i have two questions for you do you think that that was the first one do you think that he hurts his family without the hotel in the book um i you, mm, 
to what extent um i you know i don't think he tries to kill them uh yeah i kind of think that it doesn't go as well as he as he wants it to but i mean it's kind of an impossible question to answer but then i mean if you but you, if you compare it to the movie compare that to the movie without without this was always going to happen <laughs> whether there was ghosts or not right. like i kind of feel like this this version was going to there there was he was on edge he hated his family he he was annoyed by them he didn't want to be around them before yeah. they even got to the he, hotel he, he hates his wife, and like I think I never feel any warmth between them. Absolutely not. Um, yeah, I agree. Yeah, and that is a huge difference from the book, where we see that he genuinely loves his family, um, at least early going before the hotel sinks its hooks into him. You know, mm-hmm. I don't know. It's it's interesting because it's like you get so much more time in a book, right, mm-hmm. to develop these things. And I think that's the thing. It's like he streamlined it for a film. And I think that rather than being sympathetic to Jack and for the film, we're supposed to be like, what if I was Danny or what if I was Wendy? Because mm. it's like the, that's terrifying. And Jack is the monster. So I, I kind of understand cutting out the story to streamline it. Um, but obviously, I enjoyed the book as well. So it was fun to get that. It, it's I like both versions. So, And, and ultimately, I think that's where I fall, too. I think uh, if you want that story, the landmark horror novel that is The Shining is there for you. Um, to read um, and if you want this movie where it is more about um, a terror monster of in man form uh, as brilliantly portrayed by Jack Nicholson then this movie is there for you yeah I, I kind of agree and it seems like a kind of like a shitty like middle middle road answer but for this project in particular um, I stand by yeah I mean I, I fall I, we'll talk about it later but I think that I there's one that I enjoy more than the other but we can get to that later. Okay. Let's let's save that for the very end. That sounds like a good ender. <laughs> so the family the family arrives at the hotel on closing day and is given a tour. The chef, Dick Halloran, surprises Danny by telepathically offering him ice cream. Dick explains to mm-hmm. Danny that he and his grandmother shared this telepathic, telepathic ability, which he calls shining. Danny asks if there is anything to be afraid of in the hotel, particularly room 237. Halloran tells Danny that the hotel has a shine to it, along with many memories not all of which are good. He also tells Danny to stay away from room 237. So uh, really quickly, there's something with that, the uh, atrocities to the Native Americans um, kind of motif thing that was going on, or at least the subtext of it. Uh, another, so I, I would say that if I'm not going to be able to touch on all of these crazy theories and all of this stuff, uh, I would recommend anybody who's interested in it, check out the documentary Room 237. Uh, it came out a couple of years ago and it's it's got... I think the point of the documentary is to show the over what's happened with the film upon release and how once once the art once it leaves the artist's hands the intent can be taken in many different directions uh, and I think that that's exactly what the, the documentary is trying to point to but it is very interesting to see some of these things that line up and um, the I don't know if you guys noticed but in the scene with Halloran telepathically calling to Danny there's a can of uh, I think it's called Calumet. Um, it's like a baking soda right behind his head and it's got a native American with a headdress on. Um, and I, I can picture it actually. Yeah. And so that's, it's like, and it's very prominently shown in the scene and it's very noticeable. And basically that the word or the, the calumet is, is some sort of peace offering or peace pipe that would be offered by the native Americans. And so that's like people, people say, what's happening there is Dick Halloran's like sending a peace offering to Danny telling him about the shine and everything. And then the only other time that we see those, those cans in the film is when uh, Dick or sorry, when Jack is locked in the, in the uh, locker, like in that same, that area. 
and Grady is offering him a peace offering of basically asking him to do the hotel's bidding. Um, so people feel that, and and when those cans are when the, those cans are laid out, rather than being very clearly visible, they're like each one's obscured, so it's kind of like a false peace offering. And I just wanted to call this one specifically out because there's so many of these that that could be like being laid by the cans and the shelves in the back. And as I said, yeah. yeah. And so as I said before, it's like these things aren't accidental. So what, whatever you make of them is it's so kind you of t- you tend to think that Kubrick legitimately put those cans there with some. Sort there's of behind the scenes photos of him like meticulously like and like moving things and putting them in certain areas and stuff and like i wouldn't put it past him is all i'm trying to say you don't have to believe it i believe in this particular one <laughs> but but it's very very interesting to kind of see all of the and i mean if you watch his other films you know that he does this kind of stuff so if the internet's to be believed one i saw recently was someone zoomed in on uh jack torrance's tie in the opening interview mm-hmm. And it's like a green tie, and, and if you get really close, that the like fibers actually form the shape of a maze. I don't know if I believe that either. <laughs> if it's just like an accident of text, like yeah, yeah, there, it gets like it gets crazy. The stuff that people want to like give him credit yeah. for, right? <laughs> I wanna I wanna rattle off a couple real quick, just like verbally, and tell you guys about them. It'll it won't take very long. Okay, but basically, um. People think that he is subtextually making t- making messages about um, Nazis in the Holocaust because the the typewriter that he types on is a German typewriter, and it has an eagle on it. And eagles famously are um, associated with the Nazi Party as well as as the United States. And the number forty two pops up a lot, which people correlate to nineteen forty two, which is when the atrocities against the Jews were happening. So there's that one, uh, which I mean, <laughs> I'm telling you, these are th- some of them are pretty wild. There's another one that. Uh, Danny wearing that Apollo that Apollo Eleven sweater. Um, a lot of people say that that Kubrick faked the moon landing, which I do not believe. Oh, but that's true. A lot of people say he faked the moon landing, and people say I have heard that yeah, that theory. and people say <laughs> that this was his way of saying like, yes, I did fake it because um, there's a lot of clues that point to <laughs> Room Two Three Seven potentially being like being um, uh, drawing parallels to the room that he, whatever room that he used because why basically the people are saying why would he change it from 217 to 237 and then people did research and they're like well the moon from the earth is 237,000 miles away and then and like it goes <laughs> on and on and on and it's just like uh, the theories never end and I just feel like uh, there's another one about Danny um, being sexually assaulted by by Jack through throughout the film being laid uh, and actually that comes back around to the bear suit in the film. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. What was that? Yeah, it's very interesting because it's like it was a it was an unknown for a very long time, and I'm sure that people still really don't know what it means. But uh, it, there's a there's a dog there's a man in a dog costume in the book, and it was yep. changed to a bear. And um, Danny, if you watch a lot of his scenes, he ha- he'll have like a toy bear or something bear related near him. So people say that bears are representing Danny. And so for the guy to be wearing a um, like a bear and to be like giving that guy a blowjob at the end is kind of um, mm. is they're saying that like there's some sexual assault going on from Jack. And uh, there's also yeah. that really creepy scene where he puts him on his lap and all of that. And I don't know how much yeah, that theory I, I will do there. I didn't get that. I, honestly, I didn't get that one. I th- yeah, I, I mean, I, I can see the connections people are trying to make there, but it feels that one feels like a stretch. I to agree. Me. Yeah. Um, especially because that character is explained in the novel. It, you know what I mean? Like he is a person who existed in the history of the hotel. He had a sexual relationship with another He wasn't doing character. that act in the in the book though. No, you know but I mean? he had a sexual relationship with him. So 
they just put it on screen. Yeah. You know what I mean? Right, but why would um, Kubrick not yeah. cut that after, you know what I mean? It doesn't have any context in the in the movie. But that's the point, I think. I, it's, it's, it is so random and, and disorienting, and it leaves you going, what the fuck was that? Like, <laughs> I, 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 it's, it's crazy. Exactly. I think that was his intention, yeah. Again, again, uneasy. Yeah. He's making you feel like you don't understand what's going on or like you're on the back yes. foot. I do have, um, I heard uh, why the room was changed from 217 uh, from my visit to the Timberline Lodge, uh, oh. which is uh, supposedly um, the Timberline Lodge asked them to change the room number to one that uh doesn't exist at the timberline lodge okay Ah. well i i'm assuming that's got to be true yeah that's got to be true then i thought it was very interesting because somebody in in that documentary was saying the opposite but if you've been there and you know you know what it might be what's that there is we we talked about how there's the Stanley Hotel that the, uh, many of the interior shots were filmed in, and I wonder if people are maybe thought that that was the hotel that had two seventeen and requested change, but maybe it was actually Timberline, and people just didn't realize it. Yeah, I'm not I sure. I can see there being con- some some confusion there. Yeah, but yeah, I I had heard that that was the reason as well. But you would think that that like it was it's funny that they wanted it changed because again people of course want to go to the room where the movie takes place, so it's funny that they oh, wanted to change. Uh, what I heard was that they actually were worried that no one would ever want to rent that room. Right, that's what I mean, and and like, but that's the opposite <laughs> of what I think would happen. Yeah, happened. but maybe in the seventies, people didn't realize. I, I, you know what I mean? Like nowadays, I feel like we're all pretty savvy to like that's going to be the most popular room you have, probably. <laughs> yeah, it's funny how stuff works out like that. <laughs> oh, and I also want to say, um, Stanley Kubrick did did not uh, film the moon landing uh, on a set. That really happened. And uh, any arguments otherwise are bullshit. Wait, did you? <laughs> are you saying that he did film it on a set? No, he did not. I'm saying. I'm Obviously. saying uh, the official Ink the Film stance is that the moon landing actually happened. <laughs> in case there was any confusion about well, that. Well, you know what's very funny about that is that in the documentary they say basically that uh, they believe that the moon landing happened, but they just believe that the footage that we got, we were fed something that Stanley Kubrick was forced by the, the government to film, basically. Oh, man. That's been debunked so many times. Uh, I, Watch Mythbusters. I don't subscribe to that either, right. obviously. <laughs> One more thing that I wanted to mention is the change of the Volkswagen bug from red to yellow, people say, is a direct jab at Stephen King by Stanley Kubrick. So in the book, he drives a red VW bug, and in the movie, there's a yellow one. And when Dick Halloran is driving up the mountain on his way to Danny, and because and, he's trying to save them, basically, there is an overturned semi on top of a red Volkswagen bug. Oh, my God. So it was basically Kubrick saying, this is my movie. Wait, wait, so why is he digging at him in the movie, though? Because it was basically Kubrick saying, because I I guess they weren't playing well together. I'm sure that Stephen King wanted to work with Kubrick. And basically, it was Kubrick's way of saying, like, this is my version of this movie. And so your version is going to die, basically. There's an overturned semi on your version. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Interesting. And again, could could be pure coincidence. So back to the plot here. A month passes while Jack's writing goes nowhere. Danny and Wendy explore the hotel's hedge maze and Halloran goes to Florida. Wendy learns the phone lines are out due to the heavy snowfall and Danny has frightening visions. Jack, increasingly frustrated, starts behaving strangely and becomes prone to violent outbursts. Danny's curiosity about room 237 overcomes him when he sees the room's door open. Later, Wendy finds Jack screaming during a nightmare while asleep at his typewriter. After she awakens him, Jack says he dreamed that he killed her and Danny. Danny arrives and is visibly traumatized with a bruise on his neck, causing Wendy to accuse Jack of abusing him. Which is a scene right out of the novel. Um, 
basically. And so that that in that thing. Oh no, we don't get we don't get two room two three seven scenes, do we? We do. Well, um, w- not no, because Danny. We don't see Danny right. in the. We room. see Don- Danny walking into it. We don't see what happens to him. But we don't see any scene in no. there. Whereas in the book, we get Danny in the room, and then we later get Jack in the room. Right. Yeah, I mean that that um, scene is like so unbelievable too. That that the the prosthetics and the the makeup of the old woman is very realistic looking for a rotting body, and uh, I don't know. Yeah, that yeah. Which I guess we haven't even got to that scene yet, but <laughs> um, when Jack actually goes to investigate, yeah, that's true actually. Um, but you mentioned him typing on the typewriter, and that just reminded me of. The sound of the typewriter in this giant hall, hall as it's echoing and it's thundering down the keystrokes. Like, I, like I don't have this like desire to have a a um, typewriter that a lot of writers do, but that kind of makes me want one because like that's so authoritative. Like, how can you not write something that is just like incredible when you, when you have that sound coming? Out you? <laughs> Did you have any of that, Remy, as a writer? Like, you just wanted to get on a machine that made that noise. <laughs> That's funny. Um, um, I went to the Clarion West uh, Writers uh, Workshop and uh, uh, six weeks of kind of in-house, uh, on-site, uh, uh, working with other um, a dozen and a half other writers. And the last week that I was there, somebody had found a, a typewriter. And we're all living in the same house together. And I just remember that last mm-hmm. week hearing this guy down in the kitchen. <laughs> and, and Thundering he, away. And he did this marvelous first draft uh, all on this typewriter. I, I hated him for that. <laughs> I, mean, I didn't really hate him, but uh, I was definitely very envious. So there's, I, I have some, some, definitely some romance uh, associated <laughs> with that. So about... Uh, yeah. The starting to see the ghosts and everything what uh did you know about room 237 uh, uh, you did because of the because you said you'd been to the timberline to 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 see so you knew there was a room where something happened in this film um what was it like when you saw yeah. uh i guess what were your anticipations as danny was gonna, about to go in like did you know or I, did you i think um most of my anticipation was from within the film itself uh so uh I expected something to happen to the two girls um, in in that room. I, I expected that that's where they were killed. But I think later we see their bodies like in a hallway, right? It's mm-hmm. not, yeah. Not in the, so that was that was the main thing that I was expecting uh, was uh, some kind of um, uh, ghostly vision of of what had happened to them. Uh, maybe the source of all that blood coming down the hall or something like that. Um, so yeah, I didn't, I had no clue what to expect. And that was creepy as fuck. Yeah. <laughs> what, they, what they did yeah, finally I show. Mean, there's something to be said for giving no explanation, I guess. Cause yeah, in the movie, there is no explanation for, for what's going on in that room and who that woman is and yeah. why she's in the tub or any of that. Right. Yeah. I think I just kind of made mental associations. Like what was this, uh, the previous caretaker's wife? Like I, I didn't know who that person was. Um, and I didn't try really hard to, to figure it out. Yeah. I mean, ultimately, do you, did you need to, to understand the scene? I, I, I guess not. Uh, yeah, we do get a lot more story behind that character in the novel. But, um, yeah, I mean, how much of it is really needed to enjoy the creepiness of that scene? Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe not. And it is kind of unsettling not knowing. I just something startling. <laughs> um, my girlfriend just came home and opened the door, uh, and I didn't hear her, and that just 
Happy Halloween. That that was the uh, the the most spooked I've been in in quite a long time. <laughs> it's on it's on but, tape now. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> just for all listeners, my my pants are clean. So <laughs> so Jack wanders into the hotel's gold room and meets a ghostly bartender named Lloyd. Lloyd serves him bourbon whiskey while Jack complains about his marriage. Wendy later tells Jack that Danny told her a crazy woman in one of the rooms attempted to strangle him. Jack investigates room 237 and stumbles upon the ghost of a dead naked woman. At first, he is overjoyed with the sight and engages in a kiss with her. But when he looks in a mirror behind her, he sees that she, he sees her become more of a rotting old woman who then chases Jack out of the room. Despite the horrific sight he just witnessed, Jack tells Wendy that he saw nothing. Wendy and Jack argue over whether Danny should be removed from the hotel and a furious Jack returns to the golden to the gold room, now filled with ghosts attending a ball. While attending a ball, a waiter spills a tray of drinks on him and offers to take him to the, to the washroom to clean off his jacket as it will stain. While in the bathroom, the waiter reveals himself to be the ghost of Grady. After an awkward post-introductory argument about whether Grady was or was not the caretaker of the hotel, Grady tells Jack that he must correct his wife and child and that Danny has reached out to Halloran using his talent. Uh, it covers a lot of ground there. Uh, yeah, so we talked about 237. Uh, we, we haven't talked about Grady, um, the former caretaker who is now a waiter at this party. What, what, what did you make of this this party and, and, and Grady somehow sort of being under the employ of the of the hotel? Yeah, I wasn't sure what to, to make of that. Um, it took me a little bit to kind of connect uh, Grady and the, uh, I assume that he was the previous caretaker who had, um, uh, killed, uh, his, his gone crazy, killed the daughters, uh, and his wife. Yes. The creepy suggestions that he was making that he teach his wife a lesson. Oh yeah. Okay. I'm, I'm remembering now. Um, um, he was also not very likable. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, yeah, he was uh, racist, misogynist. Uh, yeah, um, yeah. yeah. Uh, and uh, what was weird, I, I think, partly too, was that he seemed so real compared to, say, you know, the 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 ghost in two thirty seven who who uh, was revealed to be something very dead. Uh, you feel like you never really got that with Grady or Lloyd. Um, and so I'm, I'm still not quite sure what to make of the two of them, like how um, they seem very physical. Grady is like actually cleaning Jack's jacket, maybe. <laughs> um, uh, Lloyd is serving alcohol that Jack is drinking. There's a physicality to that that's, so yeah. Remy, what did you make of um of Grady saying you've always been the caretaker, uh, Mr. Torrance, and and I've always been here? Like what what does that mean to you as a first time viewer? I wasn't sure what to make of that. I'm still kind of puzzling through that to be honest. Um uh there's that photo at the end. Um okay. which kinda I feel like those are uh, dots that we're trying to line up, right? Uh, the uh, You've always been the caretaker. Here's this picture. Uh, and I feel like you can take that in all kinds of directions. You know, like, uh, right. uh, did Jack get 
kind of retroactively written into uh, the the kind of psychic, I don't know, like uh, imprint of the, the hotel of the Overlook. But did uh, um, is Jack himself like some kind of I don't know, like reincarnation or something? Was he meant to be there and to go there eventually? Right. Um, I think you're actually you're you're spot on with like the two major theories, I believe. Oh wow. Those are those are like the two schools of thought, I believe, is is kind of just that um with the picture and the connections there, um people say it's it depends on how how literally you take what Grady said, right? Cuz he said like I've you've always been here. Does that mean that like he was always destined to be there or does it mean that literally he's always been there? And like you say is it like he he's come back to the hotel after does he go out and seek people out and bring them to the hotel? Or is it a situation where he has, like you said, been written, like has, did he come this time and then now he always will be the caretaker because of this, he, he falls under the this this spell of this place. And I really like those aspects actually because it it those are the elements that seem to be more like a traditional... Um, haunted house or haunted place kind of show right like it uh and it sounds like that's maybe that's where a little bit more in line with the book i don't know um where it's the these are the the signs of the house's influence on the hotel's influence on on jack um and it kind of yeah um when we had wendy on uh wendy wagner she she mentioned a theory in passing, I think, and we kind of touched on it a little bit, but about the hotel sort of having a timeless, or not timeless, but like an unstuck in time in the Kurt Vonnegut sense, like sort of uh, nature to it, where when you're when when he's experiencing the ball, instead of it being like ghosts of a ball, it's more that the hotel is like actually transporting him in time back to that moment, um, and so this sort of time travel element comes into play and that could explain how there's a picture of him being at that party if he was actually transported there um, through the sort of energy that is caught up in this hotel um, I don't know how much of that's in the movie but it's 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 it could be there I guess and it definitely is like unexplained right it's an unexplained phenomenon um, that is definitely like leaves you wondering um, and I thought that was a great that was a great theory and like um, it's supported by the text but it's also not like really laid out um, directly either. So, Meanwhile, Halloran grows concerned about what's going on at the hotel and flies back to Colorado. Danny starts calling out Red Rum and goes into a trance, referring to himself as Tony. Now, this is definitely a change from the novel. Um, he goes full Tony, so he's he's st- stuck in Tony. And I think that that's, again, a reason why it's like a f- we're further from Danny and at this point, we don't know if he's in there or not anymore. Man, Tony is so creepy in the movie and in the book yep. in a different way. Yeah. Um, the boy who lives lives inside my mouth is such a like creepy <laughs> ass thing for a kid to say. <laughs> like it just gives me chills. Like if I had ever had a child that said that to me one day, <laughs> you know that that's some creepy mm-hmm. shit. Um, and then and then it go he, like Tony goes and hides inside my stomach. Like it just it's such a like a, a odd detail that is so creepy i don't know and in, in in the book he's very different tony is this figure that is always at the edge of vision that he can never actually identifies and is talks to him from from sort of like always out of sight and it, the way he's described in the book is also very creepy but in a very different way because we're in danny's head obviously mm-hmm. in the book 
So uh, I have a question for you guys now that we're pretty far in and we've gotten to this Tony part. Yeah. Do you think that, um, first of all, I think we can all agree that like Jack is unreliable narrator, even though we're not getting him as a narrator, he's an unreliable character. Like when we're in scenes with him, he fluidly goes from one time period to another without like he, and it's normal for him. He doesn't seem to be um, affected by it. And yeah, he struts into that, that party. Like he owns it. Yeah. You know, like he's yeah. not like, oh, what's going on here? He walks in like, yep, this is where I yep. belong. And when he when he talks to you Lloyd, know? he talks about how he always he's <laughs> like, I like you, Lloyd. I've always liked you. And so it's just right. there's yeah. a lot of there's a lot of that going on where it's like um, he seems at ease. But I was wondering how you felt about um, Danny and Wendy's experiences, because Wendy really doesn't see anything until she sees like everything at the end, until she sees mm-hmm. like the elevator opening for her. And she goes into the room with all the skeletons. And, and um, do you think that Kubrick is saying, and most of the time when people see something in this in this film, they're alone. They're, it's not like they're all seeing it together. So it's like, is this all, it's like almost all of it can be, until a certain point, can just be all in the characters' heads. And they're all, they're all suffering from cabin fever, right? So you're, 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 this is the shared insanity theory right. behind it the the sort of mass hysteria yes argument. how do you feel about that that's interesting that's a good question i i feel like there are a couple I, until this moment i was uh thinking oh there's the um what's his name um grady uh unlocking the um the food locker uh the right. storage room yeah. and that's and the I, moment I cut, yeah. i've held on to that yeah it's like okay <laughs> This this is where it is definitely not happening in in uh, someone's head, but I guess you could find an explanation even for that. Like, oh, Wendy so. Wendy mentioned that as well. Yeah, we 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 talked about that with Wendy because that's the same moment in the novel where it's where it's like there's no arguing at that point that something supernatural is happening, and it's all and and we I proposed the question: Is it a cheat on the part of the storyteller? Um, but we kind of came around to, I, I, and, and I think in this film as well, it's almost essential um, if you're trying to tell a story about a haunting in any way um, and you want it to be overt. Now, if you leave that out, then it can continue to be a debate that rages on forever. But in doing that, it's like you're putting the thumb on the scale of this something supernatural is happening. Well, it's it's and it's different, I think, for the film because the ghosts are affecting the physical world before that. So they've poured, they accidentally, I mean, you could say that Jack is experiencing these things in his head, but they accidentally pour the drinks on him, Grady and Grady's cleaning him up and all of that stuff. So like, affecting, yeah, but he could be imagining right, that. That's what I mean. But, um, it seems like at that moment when the pin, fall, when the pin comes out is when Jack is complete, like, obviously he says like, I'll make sure that I'm take care of my job. But, um, he it's like completing that cycle that he started when he's like i would give my soul for a which i feel like now is kind of like i don't even know if that line is as needed as it as it maybe used to feel like because he says like when he's at the bar at one point he's like i'd give my soul for just a a beer or something and then they give him all the alcohol he could ever want and then uh this is like the completion of that is him um agreeing with grady and and the pin coming out the other thing that i kind of hold on to is the the shining itself um I mean, it's it's the title of the movie. Um, mm. It's there's that moment where Grady's saying, "Hey, do you know that your that son is communicating with 
um, someone else outside of outside the, forces. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so I feel like that's not knowledge that Jack could have or that, that Jack would even care about or connect to um, without that external help. I don't I, like I don't I don't even know why he would imagine that, you know. Yeah, honestly, it's like I I think I don't know. I don't find I guess at a certain point like it is supernatural. Like there is something supernatural happening in this movie. Right. I I kind of don't want to hear arguments to the up to the contrary. Mm-hmm. However, I will grant that you could that there may be times in which you could argue an individual thing whether or not it happened. "Quote unquote," but I, I don't think this is a movie that is that is about a man losing his mind and imagining ghosts, mm-hmm. and, and I don't think that's what the book is either. I think the book and the film are not that; they are about a man who is losing his mind, being pushed and goaded and um, inflamed by a haunting. Um, so it's, it's it's a different story, mm-hmm. I guess. Um, and 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 I can see, I, I guess I can understand the reason why people might want to push it in the other direction, but I just don't think it is right. So real quick, uh, you talked about the score and how iconic it is, um, and you also showed me that clip, and I noticed that he um, would actually play the score dirt while the actors were in the like were, were filming it. Like it wasn't just added mm-hmm. layer; he was playing it on a like a boombox, basically, right, for everybody to hear um, while they were acting, which I thought was really interesting. I, I I don't know how often that's done, but it seemed unusual to me. I mean, it's um, it's done. It's it's a decision by the filmmaker. I, I don't think that it's that uncommon, really? but it's definitely uh, because it's like it's it helps people get in the mood. Like you know, um, sometimes they'll be there. They'll play music like that isn't even related to the film to get people in certain states of mind and stuff. So weird. Now that I'm now that I'm like going going back and just like how many movies have I watched where I assumed the character couldn't hear the music. But like in actuality, the actor could hear the music <laughs> like that. That could be really weird to think about. But anyway, I just wanted to, to give an anecdote. My um, my uh, dog, Nymeria, um, was upstairs sleeping in the hallway and I was watching this film. And there's um, there's like this heart thumping. I is the only way I could think of it, like score um, that really like amps up your sort of like uh, tension. Right. And it's very bassy and it's very um, unsettling. And it's got these like high notes, too. And um, she she came running downstairs when it came on and like ran out into the room to like look for me, like what's going on. And then um, I like paused the music and she like settled down, went and got on the couch and like laid down. I was like, oh, OK, that's OK. And then like I hit play again and she immediately like popped up and was like, all freaked out again. So, yeah, uh, animals even viscerally uh, react to the score. It's very unsettling. <laughs> <laughs> so while searching for Jack, Wendy discovers he has been typing pages of a repetitive manuscript. All work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. I thought you were going to make a joke about that, Remy, with your friend <laughs> who's typing on the keyboard. <laughs> the, oh, the typewriter. You, that friend's name is Jack. <laughs> oh, that would have been great. Oh, yeah, there you go. <laughs> um, that was one of the creepier moments of, of, yeah. uh, of the whole uh, movie. And and, and, as, kind and of, as a writer, it's 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 the way it's all laid out too, right? Yeah, like it's laid out yeah. like a poem, and then it's laid out like a screenplay, and then it's laid out like prose, and like yeah, it gets, that is creepy. It gets absurd, about. right? It, like like yeah. you think, okay, we we've got it, we got it, and and you know, she pulls another page out, she like, keeps going. <laughs> Not in the book too. That's a movie only detail, right? I was and 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 a very good mm-hmm. one. 
very iconic. Very iconic. One. Yeah. Speaking of, I mean, the, there's so many things from. You can probably take a, a shot or something from each scene in this movie, and it's become iconic and referenced like crazy. And just to mention one, um, I mean, we saw we saw Ready Player One recently, and in the film yeah. they have a shine a whole shining sequence and stuff. And and I mean, it's just it's like. It's so iconic at this point, and I would say I feel that I've talked a lot about Kubrick, but I wouldn't. I haven't talked about the fact that like, um, he's such an inspiring filmmaker because it's it's he's he's the type of guy that that controls every aspect of the film, and that's like, and although he may, you know, have someone else's material that he's adapting, he makes it entirely his own, and it's just he's such an inspiring director that I I mean. Although I don't agree with all of his methods, I find him to be like one of the most fascinating. And, and I mean, I've studied m- many of his films in school and he's just like so prolific. So just wanted to say that again. But moving back into the plot, Wendy begs Jack to leave the hotel with Danny, but he threatens her before she, she knocks him unconscious with a baseball bat. Let's she stop there him- for a second. I want to talk about <laughs> that scene. That scene is like, honestly, one of the scenes that stands out most in my mind. I think that's the- that pursuit of... That 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 is pure like Jack Torrance, his 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 the way he's like emoting as he's chasing her up the stairs and she's backing up, backing up, backing up. Um the brilliant decision to have her hold the bat in such an ineffectual way that really like undercuts any threat it could represent, right? She holding she's holding it in the middle. And mm-hmm. it's like, what are you doing? And she's she's waving it around and it's like it seems so unthreatening. But then it's surprising because I didn't even remember that that scene ends with him getting hit and him falling down the stairs because, like, that part of it didn't stick out in my mind. But it does. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. Just a brilliant scene, yeah. And the way it's the way it's shot and the way the camera moves and, and, and all of that I think is, is really incredible. And I, I remember not Jack, uh, Jack Nicholson's performance but Shelley Duvall's performance in that scene. Right. Um, sh- well, both. Sure. Yeah. Well, yeah. yeah. I, 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 yeah. I regret not saying both. I agree with you. That, yeah, they, yeah, it's a great scene. Well, but go ahead, Remy. Oh, um, <laughs> give her her due. And, and I was going to say too. Uh, it's it's where um, I like Wendy the most when she's uh, being more of an agent, more more active. And so I feel like that's one of the scenes where she is doing that. Right. She's she's saying, okay, you know. Um, uh, I, I think there's the she's definitely putting herself on the line to protect Danny, uh, and then her dragging Jack all the way into the locker yeah, as and, he's waking up. That, and and yeah. that's that's such a great moment from the book. I'm so glad it made it into the movie. And and that and like it almost comes as a surprise because we don't expect that from her in, in in this version. But it's so cool to see that scene. And and yeah, that was. So there's a line in the movie where he says, "Your wife uh, has proven to be somewhat more." Uh, what did he say? Stronger or like uh, difficult to deal with or something? I forget the exact line. Than we suspect, than we previously suspected, right? And that basically is said in the book too. And, and it, um, I felt like it really lands in the book because it's very true. Whereas in the movie, it almost feels like almost accidental. Um, I don't know. Like it's just, I just keep coming back to how much stronger Wendy is in the book and how much more of a um, contender she is. Right? You know, uh, you know, a force to be reckoned with in her own right. Um, yeah, I don't know. And just, uh, that's the, this, this version, I don't get that same feeling, although she has flashes, I guess. I think that, yeah, when she, when she actually locks him in there too, and is like able to, because she, you know, she struggles with the pin for a second. And when, when she finally gets it in, it's like, that's her, like her triumphant moment. 
And um, I would also mention the scene we're going to get to in a second that of when Jack is coming in, he's breaking down the, the door when she's in the bathroom. She's able to get Danny to safety. I just think that's that's effective way to to show, at least in some way, that she is, you know, like you said before, that she's a contender in some way, even if it yeah. not quite as much as she she we would have liked or as much as she was in the book. Him locked in the pantry, um, that scene, we've already kind of touched on it with Grady letting him out. Um, right. But I just wanted to mention that video you sent me. There's an incredible moment where you see Kubrick. Um, I know what you're, yeah. Blocking out, like, or like, imagine how he wants to film this scene of him at the door, pounding on the door and talking to Wendy, uh, Jack Nicholson, and him deciding he's going to lay on the ground and shoot from underneath and like telling Jack, like, how to give the line so that he can see his face on the camera. Right. And then they show the scene actually being filmed, the take I believe that they use in the movie. Mm-hmm. And Stanley Kubrick is literally laying between his legs with a camera. That's the, the, the exact scene. That's why I sent you that video because it's so cool. We witnessed we were there to witness the moment that he came up with one of one of many iconic shots in this film. But I mean, how effective is that that lower shot of, of yeah. Jack Nicholson like looking forward but his face being down and just like screaming at, at Wendy and he grabs that like knob handle thing and like like that's such a that's like an incredible scene. So Grady unlocks the door. Danny writes red rum on the outside of the bathroom door in the family's living quarters. When Wendy sees the word reversed in the in the bedroom mirror, the word is revealed to be murder. Ooh. Did you know did you know that's what red rum meant, Remy? I think or did, I, or I, that I, think I figured that out. I think I figured that out. Uh, like, <laughs> oh nice. Uh, that's we like, we actually spoke about it and we were wondering if if somebody hadn't heard about it, would they be able to to figure it out? And that's cool to hear that you actually figured it out. And, and I'm actually wondering if if it's because I've assimilated that through pop culture because I feel like I've encountered okay. that somewhere. Um but I did um Later, uh, as I was, uh, I was really curious about Danny uh, and the actor who played him. And so I guess Danny only played this one role, or the, the, the actor played this one role and then became a school teacher. And he had to be really careful not to mention who he was because his kids, his school, uh, his students w- sometimes would, would figure this out and start saying red rum to him in class. <laughs> That's awesome. That's so crazy. <laughs> I mean, and just to say, uh, I believe his name is Danny Lloyd. Oh, his name's actually Danny? Yeah, his name's Danny. And I mean, Jack Nicholson's name is Jack. That's true. (laughs) Yeah. So, uh, yeah, his name is Danny Lloyd. And, like, that's, again, one of the... uh, We've talked about a couple of them on this podcast, but that's one of the most iconic child performances of all time. And and he absolutely kills it. And the way that he... The Tony voice is extremely unsettling. And the way he says Red Rum... Oh, it increases yeah. in pitch and yeah. frequency yeah. and, and uh, repetition. And the way that leads into the first axe fall is is like brilliant filmmaking because it yeah. builds, it builds, it builds. Something, something's happening, something's happening, and it's like a almost like a whistle of a tea kettle, and then it's immediately hit with that first thunk of the axe. And that moment is just such a high, intense, emotional moment for the film. Mm-hmm. Um, and the way he's able to create that through sound um, that is like still like essential to the scene. I don't know. It's so cool. Yeah, and I mean that's something that's found in the edit. So we should also shout out the editing. That is like the the scene is crafted in such a way that that um, 
again becomes so so iconic and recognizable as a Kubrick scene. Uh, and also, we talked about camera movements and tracking shots, but also just his his use of movement, uh, specifically when when Jack Torrance is cutting down the door as he as he pulls the as he pulls the axe back, we pan left, and then as he swings it at the same pace, where the camera's panning into the door, yeah. the camera's like locked that, on the axe. Yeah, 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 that that like momentum that the camera's giving brings so much so much to it as well, and. Um, another little tidbit I found in research is they went through 60 doors because apparently Jack Nicholson was a, uh, it took three days of filming. They went through 60 doors for filming of this scene. And, um, the reason that they had so many doors, uh, was because Jack Nicholson at, at some point had been a fireman. So he was good. He was too good at cutting down the door at in some points. <laughs> so he was, they were going through too many doors. That's so awesome. another That's funny awesome. little thing. <laughs> Okay, so Jack begins hacking through the quarter's main door with a firefighter axe. Wendy sends Danny through the bathroom window, but it will not open sufficiently for her to pass. Jack breaks through the bathroom door, shouting, Here's Johnny! (laughs) But retreats after Wendy slashes his hand with a butcher's knife. Hearing Halloran arriving in a snow... Do kids seeing this scene even know what that means nowadays? Like, I barely know what it means, I feel like. (laughs) You know, it's the the reference to the Johnny Carson show. Exactly, yeah. It's funny that, that that's where he went with it because it's like I don't know what significance it has other than the fact that it was that w- that was his entrance. It's you know funny because I mean? it's kind of a timely reference for, for for the time that it was filmed, but no, it is no longer, and it's not a, it's not something that Jack Torrance says in the novel. Okay, I was right. going to ask. Yeah. yeah. The other thing is he does the I'll huff and I'll puff and all the little uh, piggies yeah. thing that he does, which is, is timeless. Timeless. So uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But it is the, the it is interesting that he was like. I wonder yeah. what other. I bet you like some of that. That may have been ad libbed, actually. Now that I think about it, I think I may have read that somewhere. But um, just the idea that like he they were working on set in that way and and like trying to trying things out is cool to to know. What did? Yeah, when you're doing sixty takes, I'm sure he said lots of different stuff, and then you just <laughs> find the things you like the most. <laughs> yeah. What what um does he say in the book? It's a good question. Nothing I don't know that he so, says anything. Nothing like, so like memorable. Yeah. yeah. It's you know how that is where like in a book it's like it it, it just isn't as cinematic. Um, these scenes it, it focuses more mm. on other things, yeah. in my opinion. Um, I was looking for it, but I don't remember him saying anything. But it's it wasn't like he had any sort of phrase that you're gonna remember later. Oh, I remember when he said that phrase. Like he doesn't really ever do that. Yeah. So hearing Halloran arriving in a snowcat, Jack leaves the room. He murders Halloran with the axe in the lobby and pursues Danny into the hedge maze. Wendy runs through the hotel looking for Danny, encountering ghosts and the cascade of blood Danny envisioned in Boulder. She also finds Halloran's corpse in the lobby. Uh, I also want to count, call out the, the limping, lurching movement of Jack Torrance. Because the of the axe. fall down the staircase. Because of the fall down the staircase. And how, and how that makes him into such a creature throughout this, right? Like, it really transforms him. He's, he does not seem human. Um, and he's raving. So he's a raving lunatic. He's limping. He's got a bloody axe. Like he is, he really becomes quite terrifying as this, as this progresses. Remy, did you think that Halloran's trip to the hotel and then his ultimate demise, uh, did you think that that, did you see that coming in any way? Like, was that surprising to you? I know you said that you, you wish that he would have survived, but how, how was that? So, like, cause it kind of ends, it's kind of just like a moment where it's like the, he was building this up for this, this shocking moment. I was surprised for sure, uh, and it seemed in some ways almost uh, anticlimactic. 
um like i wasn't well, I, since you really sorry really quickly just to interject um uh since you said that it feels anticlimactic i think it's it's um interesting to note that originally it was much more brutal and violent and jack torrance basically like tore him up and ripped him apart. oh jeez. <laughs> um and uh but kubrick felt like it went too far and something more subtle and more of just like a one one hit and kill kind of thing would it would be better um so yeah you sorry you were saying that you felt it was anticlimactic yeah like um that that he um he goes through a lot of trouble to come back and it seems like his one plot point is to bring a snow cat <laughs> um but now you've also mentioned that that it's also to demonstrate that that jack is capable of murder um which i i hadn't yeah. thought about uh before that I, I think it also it, it also um it is that kind of bait and switch of that is the line of hope we've had throughout when we when, as soon as we know halloran's coming it's like Halloran's coming to the rescue. He's going to make it here eventually. That's our one, you know. And so the moment he dies, all of a sudden, all hope is lost. It's that it's that black moment of what are they going to possibly do now? The one person who was there to help them is dead. Um, so I, I, it does work effectively in that way. And, and it's interesting because King kind of gets away with both and having it be because he essentially the same thing happens to him, but he just doesn't die from it. Um, so he has that same moment, but then he can, he can kind of walk it back by having Halloran be alive at the end. Um, but you could argue maybe it's less effective. I don't know. Um, but then there is also the race element that we talked, we talked about a lot in the, in the last episode with Wendy, how, um, King has gotten notorious, uh, for some of his portrayals of, uh, people of color and especially in the way he uses them as sort of the mystical, magical characters in his novels. And, um, it's interesting to note here, though, that this character is is handled quite differently in the film, um, and I think um, I think the the argument against the character is stronger in the film as potentially being problematic. Um, also, in the way um, I noticed that it, you know when he's back in Florida, he's got these prominent paintings of naked black women on his walls, um, which is another like uh, problematic trope of the over sexualized. Um, so it's. There's, I think there's more there um, for this particular character that is problematic in the film. Um, but who am I to say? Ultimately, I'm a white guy, so um, I don't know. It's interesting, though, um, and, and it's something that I think we should point out. I don't want to just, like, completely ignore these sort of things, right? Like, I want to always kind of highlight them and, and say that it is worth uh, considering. Yeah, that's uh, actually at some point um, uh, my girlfriend and I were watching this together, and she leaned over and said, he's a, a literal magical Negro, you know, like he fits yeah. that trope. Um, and then I was, yes. I, I, <laughs> and I was disappointed when, when uh, he, he was killed, you know, like, uh, yeah. so I, I am pleased to hear that he had a, a more com- complicated role in, in the book. Yeah. Yeah. And I will again, shout out uh, Nettie Akorafor's, uh essay, she wrote that was published in Strange Horizons. Um, I believe it's called Stephen King's Super Duper Magical Negroes. Um, might be, it might be a slight variation on that title off the top of my head. Um, but it's extremely good because she writes it from the point of view of a woman of color who is a big Stephen King fan and also an extremely accomplished writer in her own right. Um, and, and it's a very, very interesting take on this that does it a lot more justice than I can do. Um, so, yeah, go read that uh, if you get a chance. I'll put it in the show notes for this one as well. It was also in the show notes of the last episode, but I'm going to put it in again. (laughs) 
So uh, just to wrap up here, Danny lays a false trail to mislead Jack, who is following his footprints before hiding behind a snowdrift. Danny escapes from the maze and reunites with Wendy. They escape in Halloran's snowcat while Jack freezes to death in the snow. In an old photo, in an old photograph in the hotel hallway dated July fourth, nineteen twenty-one, Jack Torrance smiles front and center amid a crowd of party revelers at the Overlook. So we end we end in ice instead of in fire, uh, which um, we we talked a little bit about in the last episode, but I think we should we should come back to again here because, um, yeah, we end we end with Jack in the maze. We end with him frozen. Um, and the Overlook lives on, whereas in the book, the Overlook burns down, <laughs> um, and, and and Jack Jack with it. Um, so, yeah, it is an interesting difference here, and one that I know Stephen King has said that he feels like the movie ended the wrong way. Um, so yeah, just your ta- your takes on that, R- Remy. Your take on it first, I think. Knowing what little I know about the book, it sounds like again the house. Yeah. The I keep saying the house because I'm thinking haunted house. Also, I just watched yeah. uh, uh, what is it, the haunting of Hill House, <laughs> which is oh, I want to I want to watch that. <laughs> I'm hoping you yeah, guys are going to do that so at some point things. because the, both the Shirley Jackson, uh, you know, story and uh, and the, and the the series are great. Um, yeah, I I want to. That's something that we yeah. we talked about in a bonus episode. Is like. Uh, yeah, we got we get we got to figure out a way to cover that because uh, yeah, it definitely. And it's uh, Stephen King has said a huge inspiration for this novel. Oh really? Okay. Yeah. So so th- actually, that's interesting to think about uh, the the parallels between the the houses and and even time. Um, but mm-hmm. um, so knowing the the difference of how the book and the movie, um, uh, who the villains are, uh, who the main influence is. Uh, it makes sense to me that the that this story ends with Jack's death. The movie ends with Jack's um, death, and that's the kind of the mm. final scene that we get is him all. Uh, well, I guess the second to last scene. Is there anything to be drawn from the ice versus fire? Are uh, uh, d- difference there? And I can open it up to either of you if you know. I don't want to just put you on the spot, Remy. <laughs> <laughs> um, but but yeah, because and I don't even know the answer to this. I'm honestly just posing the question. Yeah. I have thoughts for sure. Like I, I, yeah, I've been thinking about this. They're they're totally different stories, right? Yeah. And I think that with the character development that we get through the book and uh, growing to know Jack and knowing that he does he does seemingly want to be a better person and want to protect his family and be there for them, um, and ultimately he's taken by this by this hotel. Um, I think the explosion and like the you know the the climax of all of these things ending with that one indefinite ending is is um fitting and i think it wraps the story nicely um for this i feel that kubrick is he's telling a different story and there's a little more i i don't think that it's more of like a subtle story but i think it is a lot more ambiguous so i think that it, a more ambiguous ending fits this so we we get Jack Torrance freezing, but we see a picture of him, so it's he's potentially a part of the hotel um, from here on, or always was, or um, and I just think that the hotel living on is a bit more ambiguous and creepier and more in line with this story than if it had blown up. The mm. other thing that kind of I found interesting is that um, he his demise is linked to uh, Danny's agency. Right, so Danny is the one who yeah. runs into the maze. Danny takes that those deliberate back steps, 
right? And I don't think he's trying, he's just trying to get away, but he does outsmart um, his dad. And I, I think there's something significant to that, that it's Danny who is ultimately responsible for Jack's demise. Yeah, I think you're right. I, I agree with that. And I, I, I've seen multiple mentions of this, but um, there is the myth of the Minotaur and the labyrinth and the way that this represents mm-hmm. um, Danny as uh, I can't believe I can't remember the character's name right now, but the, the character who bests the Minotaur. The Theseus? Um, is that Theseus? I, th- I, yeah, sound, I think, I think it is Theseus. It sounds right. So, um, and this kind of mirrors that the, like he outs rather than besting it in combat or something, he outsmarts him. I I think that, that that's also something that's going on here is like sort of a parallel to that. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I like that. And, and I wanted to also, I mean, just before we move on from it, that maze, there was a shot that I always found to be kind of unsettling (sighs) because I couldn't figure out how it was being done. But it's like this really wide angle, and you see this massive maze, and then it slowly kind of zooms in, and you realize that because you think you're looking at the model, mm-hmm. but then you it's, it zooms in, you realize you're not looking at the model because you can see them walking around inside of it. Right. Um, and I remember it was a very it's like a very weird thing, and I'm like, do you know anything about how that shot was done? I um, I like I don't know officially. But my yeah. what I would think is that during this time period with the sort of special effects that they had. Um, he was just, um, because the image is so small and you can't, you wouldn't be able to make it out even if it was, you know, like put in there with CG or something, which they didn't have at this time. I think that it's just, uh, I think that it is just the model and he's like basically superimposing like, uh, like they had gotten footage of, of the characters walking or maybe it was models or something like that, that they had moving. I don't think that the, because it looked like the the actual actors. Yeah. So I think what they did was film the actors in a similar way and then just kind of overlay the film on each other. Oh. So it looked like they were walking in the maze. I'm always interested because I see it and I'm like, this isn't computer generated. You know what I mean? Right. So it's always interesting when I'm like, they're pulling this off somehow. Right. It was definitely, I think it was practical and I think it was probably just overlaid film. Okay, cool. As an aside, I, I'm just imagining how Kubrick, you know, with his, his 70, 80 shots, uh, working with film instead of with, uh, um, you know, uh, digital, yeah, yeah, some kind of digital, like just trying to go through every one of those, uh, the, the editing work must've been, um, Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. I can't even imagine. Oh my gosh. Up to this point, I can't believe that I didn't mention this, but there's somebody very important that I need to have mentioned <laughs> at the top. <laughs> um, Diane Johnson was the co-screenplay writer. And she was instrumental in this film and this film being adapted the way that it was. She worked tirelessly with Kubrick for months. They're, they they were famously, they, they all they did was talk about the story for a month without writing any of the screenplay. Oh, wow. um, and I can't believe that I didn't mention her because he, he went out of his way to make sure that her name was, was co-screenplay writer right next to his on all of the marketing material and advertising material. So I am glad that I remembered and it so that we could get it in the episode. Is that who we see in that in those behind the scene footage talking with like, to Jack I Nicholson? I think so. And, I think that is her, yeah. yeah, Diane. So I think we should also put the link to that. We've referenced it a few times in the show notes. So people yeah. can check that out too. It's, it's really fascinating, some behind the scenes Yeah, I'd love to see that, some of that. From the filming. 
And I was actually surprised it didn't include the because you you've seen what I'm talking about, James, with the um him sort of psyching himself up for the axe scene. Definitely, that wasn't yeah. in that particular clip, but if you, you can find that on YouTube, I'm sure, and, and it, yeah. that's actually really interesting to see too. I would highly recommend with all the stuff that I watched and all the stuff like I would recommend that documentary, Room Two Three Seven, just to kind of get some different weird takes on it, and also um, anything anything that you can find like relating to the production of the film on YouTube, like you're saying, just go through and just watch behind the scenes stuff and, and like see Kubrick and his element um, because he oh. is very, very interesting to me. So when Wendy was on, we talked about the ending and how, uh, according to legend, much of the set burned down, um, which I did confirm doing some research since that last episode. Um, yeah, it does seem that a lot of the, the set burned down afterwards, which I think is uh, really interesting because there was a huge fire uh, one night and we, ne- and, this, and quote, we never really discovered what caused the fire. Um, it burned down two sound stages and threatened a third at uh, Elstree Studios. Um, it was a huge fire, and it cost $2.5 million to rebuild one of those sound stages. Jeez. Anyway, but there's apparently a picture of, a famous picture of Kubrick laughing in front of the wreckage. <laughs> um, so it, it's really interesting, right? Because we talked about the, the novel ends with the Overlook burning down and then the set burning down. Uh, I mean, it's like, I feel like, I don't know. What if it was like the producers were like, we need things reshot, we need it redone, and he's like, well, the sets are gone, so sorry. <laughs> you think he burned it? The conspiracy theory? He burned I don't it think himself. he actually did, but I don't know. It's fun to think. It's fun to imagine. I found one other little tidbit that I thought was really interesting, just from an adaptation point of view. Apparently, Stephen King wrote an entire screenplay for this movie. Yeah, I heard that. Gave it to Kubrick, who didn't even glance at it. I heard. It saying that he thought Stephen King's writing was weak. I did hear that, yeah. Well, that's what's <laughs> interesting is that basically when I remember the story that I told you about the secretary, from what I understand, uh, Kubrick felt that there were the seeds of a good film in there. Like he wanted the elements of right. it. He didn't necessarily like all of what was going on. Right. So that's, you know, really fascinating. <laughs> um, and, 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 and if King knew that, you can see maybe there's even more grounds for him to say that he didn't like this adaptation. Well, I think that that's... It sounds like the two two did not get along very well. I do think that that he didn't adapt Stephen King's novel in the way that King would have liked, but King doesn't strike me as the type of guy that would have been opposed to, like, a departure. I think that there was just bad blood between them, but that's my personal kind of take on that there. I think that he didn't... he, He was... He maybe didn't like the film because of that bad blood. I mean, I feel like it has to have been a part, but we have to also keep in mind that this is Stephen King's third novel. Yeah. Um, so this is not Stephen King who's written 50-plus novels at this point in time, who has had a million adaptations made off of his work. He had had Carrie made, but that was it. Mm-hmm. Um, so he, you know, this was his third novel. So, and he has said, you know, he considers it one of his greatest novels, if not his greatest novel. So um, I think there is, like, a lot built up in the story as he wanted it told. And then I can see also just from an artistic point of view being frustrated with the changes, um, at least in with this work in particular. Has anybody seen the? Uh, there's a was there a mini series that was there done? was yes, um, and that one was that. Um, I I think I read somewhere that Stephen King was more involved in that one. He was yeah. We neither of us have seen it, but but we plan to eventually probably watch it. Yeah, I want to. Maybe we'll do that for a bonus episode or something because. Um, yeah, I mean, as we've talked so much about this, um, I think the thing, the thing to, to think about with the miniseries too, is that although it is some, it's technically a remake, you know, of a, of a film that was already out, um, 
I think there's something to be said for the fact that Kubrick's The Shining is because like I didn't even know that the miniseries existed. So it's yeah, like there's a re- yeah. there, I think that the like not necessarily saying that the story is better in Kubrick's version or anything like that. It's just that Kubrick clearly had a vision that stuck with people. Well, and I think um you can make the argument that that Kubrick was a master of his art form. Um, the film and 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 he and I think he may have identified difficulty with taking what King was doing on the page and turning it into a film and maybe it wouldn't have been as effective and iconic a movie as we as we ended up getting um, despite those differences and whatever you think about them um, and 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 I don't know I mean it's it's tough to say because it's like what if there's an alternate universe where Kubrick makes a more faithful adaptation with all of his might and all of his skill, is that even possible? And and what does that look like? And how does that compare? It's so hard to know. But yeah, um, ultimately he put his own stamp on it, right? And we got we got <laughs> the film we got. And um, I don't know. Yeah, I, I guess we've come back around to the question now. I think organically. Um, now I know for Remy, you haven't read the book. Um, so you can't really say, but, um, I, I, I have guess, a cool um, question for Remy d- though, if, if we wanted to post something, okay. yeah, go ahead. So, um, in terms of this, this film being iconic and legendary, um, I guess I'm just wondering, did it live up to the hype? Did it live up to what you were expecting? Um, I'm going to say it didn't for me. I, um, and, and I say this as someone who, um, I don't think I'm opposed to, I think I like Kubrick. I, I, I grew up watching um, uh, Doctor Strangelove. I, I, um, uh, 2001 remains uh, uh, one of my favorite movies. Um, and I probably watched that, you know, a couple times a decade. Um, um, and, uh, uh, but yeah, this, this one, it, I'm not sure if it's because some of the personal reasons I cited or, um, it, it, it isn't one of my favorite horror movies for sure. And there are certainly other Steve, Steve, uh, King adaptations that, that I would rank probably higher than, than this in terms of just my own personal enjoyment of the, mm-hmm. the films. I, it's definitely powerful. It's definitely, uh, well done. Um, but, and I definitely have a lot of respect for Kubrick as a director, as a filmmaker, um, but yeah, I, I'm not sure if it um, if it made that kind of powerful or deep impression on me. Fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, other people, I'm sure there are other people who share that view of it. Um, and and part of it is maybe, um, no, nah, maybe not. But I mean, I, I think there you can argue some of it doesn't hold up quite as well. I thought in particular, the skeletons seemed a little hokey to me. Like it felt very like Halloween. I don't know. Do you know what I'm talking about? That the flash of the skeleton right, yeah. sitting in that room, um, and then, it, and then even the final scene of of Jack frozen, while effective in theory, I it almost looks kind of silly to me mm-hmm. too. He's got this like weird look on his face. Um, I don't know. There's just a couple things here and there that felt a little dated, um, but but ultimately, like this movie to me, if you bring it back to my my personal reaction to it, is I can remember watching this when I was very young. Um, and, and identified very strongly with Danny in a sense of like, I am you only a little bit older um, and being it, it, it. And I think a lot of people have this experience, too, of it being one of the scariest movies you've ever seen. 
Um, and and I remember having that happen too, where it was it was creepy in a way that I hadn't experienced before. Um, That's yeah. a good point because for Go me, ahead. it's like um, people. Pe- uh, I think people have a different idea of what makes a scary movie, and um, I think that this movie. I think that this movie isn't scary in the traditional sense. I think that it's very, very unsettling and creepy. And I think that that's really yeah. what it has going for it. And, um, but for me, I mean, this is a, this is, um, I'm very passionate about this film. This is like a very, this is like a landmark film for me. And I just think that, um, I don't know for, for, for all of the things that can be drawn out of it and like for, for all of the, uh, fandom that's followed it, I guess, um, which has only made it that much more iconic. Um, it just, it's just to me, one of the most well-crafted and like interesting and thought-provoking, uh, horror films that you'll see, I feel like, because it's made in a way that, that is unconventional. And I think, and I find this weird and, and different things. Uh, typically I, I tend to like really enjoy those. So I think for most projects, we don't we don't say usually mm-hmm. at the end which we liked better. Occasionally we do, but sometimes we don't. We just kind of leave it unsaid. But I, I think it's interesting for me and you, James, here at the end to con- try and come down if we can on what was better, if such a thing could be said. What was better, the movie or the book? Uh, we'll do it this time. Um, uh, do you want me to go first or do you want to go You can go first. first. I just talked for a bit. Okay. Uh yeah. Um uh it's so hard. Uh, um it's so hard cuz like I said this this is one of the creepiest movies I've ever seen. I, I it holds a special place in my heart as a kid. It holds up to me um I from a technical point of view. You know what it is though? I think that I fall back on. And there are some things in the book I don't like as well too. Like to me some of the um some of the haunted house aspect of the of the hotel almost gets to a point where it becomes overblown in the book, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, and it loses some of that subtlety. Um, so it's not like I think the, the book is perfect either. Um, but everything you say about the movie being iconic and being landmark is also true about the novel. Mm-hmm. Um, I think The Shining as a horror novel is an iconic landmark horror novel. There's a reason that it got adapted into a major film there's a reason that the story did so well, and and regardless of what Kubrick might think of Stephen King's writing, um, I don't think it can be you know you can't you can't look at this movie and not see King all over it because it's it is his story at its mm-hmm. heart even if you're just pushing certain things in certain directions. Right. So all that being said, I'm making the argument that for me, the book was was <laughs> better, if by only a little. Yeah. I had a feeling you might go that way. Uh, yeah. So I disagree. I right off the bat. I, I figured yeah. you would. <laughs> I uh, I feel like the film is better. Um, uh, and and really like I don't I don't want to dig the book at all. I think that the book is incredible, and I'm so glad that I read it. And it was such a good. It was such a fun uh, experience. So so the you were talking about how the how the book really feels like a Stephen King novel, and um, the and it does to me. It it feels like it feels familiar a bit, uh, and it feels like his voice a lot. And um, I think that that is leads it to feeling like like something that I've a very very good version of something that I've read before. Not that it's like the same thing that he's done before, but something similar. 
Um, and for me, I just don't know that I've seen even it doesn't even like there's Kubrick all over the film, but it doesn't even feel like necessarily a Kubrick film. It's like a, it's like it doesn't feel like something I've seen before or will see again to me. But that would I, and that's it just edges out the book for that reason to me. All right. Fair enough. I think that that's probably a good place to leave it because, hey, that's what this podcast is all about. Right. Books and movies. You're the movie guy. I'm the book guy. I think it's only fitting. <laughs> Remy, thank you so much for coming on again. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, thank you so much, Remy. Well, thanks for having me. It's been an honor. Yeah, I mean, our first return guest. Um, <laughs> it's 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 been cool. Um, I mean, you're one of our favorites, and and you know, we absolutely hope to have you back again one day. Um, <laughs> we'll give you a little breather, you know, but maybe we'll call call you up again one day. Yeah. Well, this will give me a chance to to go and read The Shining. So. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Maybe we find some iconic film you haven't seen. You know, let me know. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, if you want more Remy, definitely go check out that Annihilation episode because uh, it's a, another favorite of yeah, mine. Yeah, that was such a fantastic um, and, episode and, and, too. And, yeah, 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 really good project. Yeah, that too. was a lot of fun. Before you go, um, if you could let our listeners know where they can find you on social media and they can keep apprised of any work that you might be doing, anything like that. Yeah, uh, I'm working on a novella for uh, um, Broken Eye uh, Books. Uh, it's a um, fungal punk. Uh, um, nice. lots of uh, creepy uh, mushroom horror um, and um, yeah you can find me um, on Twitter Remy Mura uh, R-E-M-Y-M-U-R-A uh, or on Facebook or um, at uh, mindonfire.com is uh, uh, my website but uh, yeah thanks for, for the opportunity to, to come and hang out with you guys again it's always a blast Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm so glad you were able to come on. Hopefully, uh, your experience with this movie wasn't uh, too negative, and you were able to, oh, to no, no, kind of still enjoy talking about it. <laughs> no, it was it was it was a lot of fun. Okay, gl- g- glad to hear that. All right, Remy, see you later. Yeah, take it easy. All right, so we just wanted to thank our patrons for supporting this podcast. Uh, in particular, Jill B. Uh, been a patron for a long time, helping keep this thing going. It's, you know, thanks so much for doing it. Uh, if you want to learn how to become a patron, you can go to patreon.com forward slash ink to film. Also, if you wanted to connect with us on social media, we're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. All of those are at ink to film. Yeah, and we have a Facebook group called the Council of Inklings uh, that you should definitely join. There's been a lot of fun discussion on there. I share a lot of just random articles and stuff I found about adaptation news. Uh, it's a lot of fun. Definitely uh, search for that on there, the Council of Inklings. Also, if you wanted to help the podcast out without spending any money, you could leave us a rating or review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Uh, we are getting close to 50. I think we're at 49 right 49. now. 49. So, so somebody, just somebody, be the 50th. Help us out. Get us over, the, gonna be the, 50th. Us over the hill. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, and if you wanted to send us feedback about this episode or any other, um, you can send us an email at inktofilm at gmail.com. Oh, hey, and as a reward for listening to the very end of this podcast, um, we are going to announce our next project, uh, which we forgot to do earlier than this, uh, which is going to be a lot of fun. Do you want to do, do the honors? I think people are going to freak out because we're doing... <laughs> I'm going to freak out. Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. <laughs> Harry Potter is a, you know, uh, quite a difference from uh, what we just covered, but I think it's time to, to, get a, to get a palate cleanser and go to something just warm and homey and, and, and enjoyable and um, the start of something that really grew into something amazing. So, um, yeah, I think it's going to be a lot of fun to cover that. So, Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone, the novel is going to be our next episode. 
Yeah. And if you know anything about me, uh, I was I was born and molded in Harry Potter. <laughs> so this is my entire childhood. So I'm imagining really like a Bane voice this. a little bit there. But <laughs> I was molded by it. <laughs> Seriously, uh, though, like it was a huge deal for me growing up. So I'm yeah, really so, excited so to look forward to, to that for sure. Um, but yeah, we, we, we also wanted to thank uh, Ross Bugden for the use of our intro and outro music. Thanks one more time to Remy for coming on again. This is, again, that was his second episode, and it was so much fun to have a returning guest for the first time. Yeah, it was so cool, and he killed it. I I thought it was great. So, yeah, thank you so much, Remy. Uh, Yeah, until next time. Thanks for listening. Bye.